Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Going Deep Podcast with Aaron Watson. I've got a very, very exciting guest today, but before I introduce him, I need to remind everyone that if you've been enjoying the show or you enjoyed today's episode, you can do me a huge solid by heading over to the iTunes library, leaving a rating and a review. Hopefully five stars, hopefully I've earned it, but I trust your judgment. Um, And also make sure to subscribe to the show on whatever you're listening to, whether it's Stitcher, iTunes, or Podbean. Uh, We're on all three of those. I really appreciate that. That helps me climb the iTunes algorithms, which is uh, how we get more people to hear this great content. Um, Today's episode is with a good friend of mine, Henry Thorne. Um, Henry introduced me to the sport of ultimate when I was in high school. He put a disc in my hands and, you know, without really knowing exactly what would come of it, sent me back to my, uh, back to my house to spend the next year thrown with friends, uh, playing some disc golf, this and there, and eventually ended up coming to a tournament with his son, Max, and played my college career with his two sons, Alex and Max, where we won a couple Uh, championships at the University of Pittsburgh, but what um, I came to learn from knowing Henry and having him drive us to tournaments and uh, hearing him on the sidelines is that Henry's one of the most passionate people that I've ever met. He's incredibly passionate, passionate about Ultimate Frisbee. He's passionate about the work that he does in the field of robotics, and he's just really passionate about engaging socially with other people. Uh, I've been to some party tournaments with him. Uh, He just brings an energy that you immediately recognize as wholesome and true and powerful. So hopefully I was able to capture that in this episode. Uh, We start off talking about his work with his company, Four Moms, which has been recognized as one of the fastest growing companies in Pittsburgh, but also has received a lot of national acclaim Sites like Forbes, other places have done profiles of the company, so it's pretty cool to get into their new office, see the work that they're doing, and the culture that they're trying to build. Um, And then on the back nine, we talked about his playing career a little bit, uh, USA Ultimate, and some of his visions for the future of the sport. So I think you're going to get a lot from this conversation. Hope you enjoy it. And without further ado, Henry Thorne. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on my show. I, I really, really appreciate it. To start things off, uh, in the intro, we talked about that you are the co-founder and chief technical officer of Four Moms. But when you're at a party or you meet someone new, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. I, I always worry that I might come on a little strong if I say founder of Four Moms, if you've heard of it, or, or uh, I say I'm the, Al- I'm the father of Alex and Max Thorne. <laughs> so I, I'm a little careful about that. I, I, I talk about being an entrepreneur and um, being a 
was going to follow. So I sort of list those as my priorities. And then if they get into it and say, so what countries did you start? I start talking about that stuff. But in general, I don't, I don't jump in too hard. Uh, so along with Four Moms, you've started some other companies, uh, Cycle Time, Robotics, which turned into Athon. Was that the sum total of your entrepreneurial pursuits, or were you always kind of an entrepreneur, or did you have other entrepreneurial attempts before that? I bet everybody has their archetypal entrepreneurial story of their childhood, but I will tell you mine to edit this out later. Third grade, art class, flowers made with tissue paper were absolutely gorgeous and captivating to me. When I got home that day, my parents were having a party, and I went down to the basement and found tissue paper. And I asked mom if I could use it to make flowers, and I got a yes, and then could I sell them to people at the party? I got a yes. And at that time, I had an allowance that was a dime a week. So a dollar was 10 weeks of dimes. And I had all my dimes on my windowsill on my bedroom. Exactly how many dimes I had. It was like 14 or something. But what I wanted to buy was comic books and uh, actually uh, models, which are plastic little models that I don't think they even have this stuff anymore. You could build up a little car or a little bit. Um, I got a yes, and so I sold these flowers at the doorway where people were coming into the party. And I sold 14 of them, and I made $14, which was like infinity. I mean, I, I was a millionaire from the point of view of my <laughs> little seven-year-old self. And uh, really, uh, really learned entrepreneurship right there. You make a compelling product. And you put them in a position to sell well, you can make a lot of money, and it's really exciting. So the sum total of my entrepreneurship would have to include that one. Um, but yes, you're right. Those are the companies that I have started, and I, I did that um, starting in 1992. Could you briefly just kind of go over what each of those companies uh, Tech products they worked on? Yeah, so I was a robotics engineer at General Motors, and that was a rare thing at that time. This was 1985. I left the Robotics Institute uh, and was uniquely qualified at making industrial robots do things like weld cars. And so I had spent a lot of time making industrial robots do things on factory floors, and I was good at it. And I knew what the customer of those robots really needed because I had been one. It was like it takes a thief. I had put those robots to work. So I knew what they really needed to do to make those robots work better. And I made tools for industrial robots that made them work better. One was a graphic user interface, and graphic user interface was very rare at that time. Windows 2.0 was out and it was horrible. I used actually a Mac on an industrial robot, which is crazy at the time. But so much better than the one-line displays that were on the teach methods. It just blew everybody away. And I made calibration systems for the robot tool center part, which is something I'm not going to bother to describe, but believe me, it's very important to making the robot work well. And I made it completely automatic. The customer just pushed a button and it all worked. And that solved one of the bigger problems they had. 
And so I did that in 1993, and I've been selling them ever since. My only problem is my patent runs out. They, they only go for 20 years. My patent runs out next year. Uh, but I've been selling calibration systems and graphic user interfaces through that company for the last 20 years. And, uh, that was fun and interesting, um, but not very public and not something anybody would ever see or care about, save a few electricians on plant floors of uh, automotive plants. So I wanted to make something a little more exciting that would reach more people. And I made a robot called the Psy Robot, which was the first personal robot. And the website was www.personalrobots.com. And Wired Magazine called it the Mac of Robots. I had it in Time Magazine twice, the New York Times twice. The only problem was nobody knew really what it was for. It was, it was really cool. You would put it down on the floor, drag it on your computer screen, and it would move in the floor in the direction you dragged it. As you dragged it around, it would start mapping out the room, and then you could set up where you wanted it to go when. So it was a combination of graphic user interface and a mobile robot. It had a wagon attachment, a vacuum attachment. You could actually get it to vacuum floors back in the late 90s. And um, it was Australia's cool product of the year. Then got pressed like you would not believe. I was on Good Morning America on the Today Show. It was really cool, but it lacked a purpose. It was fun to play with, but it didn't really have any purpose. It failed to answer the question of what's it for. So I spent a couple of years learning about marketing and trying to understand what customers actually want. And there, there are things about customers where they actually want stuff that's cool, um, sunglasses and stuff like that. But uh, you need to aim your product at some need and desire of a customer. And although my robot was incredibly cool, it lacked that. What I did was I hired a guy from Smith Klein Beecham who was who had launched the product Aquafresh. He was a fairly brilliant marketing guy and business guy. And I talked to all the smartest business people I could find and learned that there's this whole world out there of business that's as complicated, I liken it to the human body. Trying to make a business is like trying to implant an organ. It has to be connected successfully to your nervous system, to your blood flow, to a billion other things. I'm not a doctor. Don't ask me. But it's really complicated to get a whole new system to work in the world of commerce that already exists. And one of the key things is having something people really want, and not only want, but will buy. They have to want it enough that they're going to actually buy it. And learning from all these people was incredibly eye-opening. And I realized that I lacked a business degree and I lacked business knowledge. And I didn't understand the world of finance. And so there was this whole world of business out there that I assumed was simple and easy, like parenting or Balancing your checkbook. So that was actually incredibly complicated. Um, that it was really hard to make a business successful. And so I hired that guy, and he wrote up a million business plans on how we could actually put this robot to work because the technology worked. And uh, we turned it into a hospital robot, a robot that pulled supplies around in hospitals called the Tug. Changed the name from Probotics to Athon. Athon is the mythical horse that pulls carts across, pulls the sun across the sky every day. And we actually got away from robotics because the word robot was a bad word at that time. No businesses in robotics had ever made money. 
So nowadays, by the way, that would be completely different. People expect robotics to be a really big business sector that is going to really be profitable. Um, and in fact, four months is the case of But at the time, we changed the name to Avon and changed the product to get uh, bigger. It was about the size of a toaster oven. I would pull full-size hospital guards around them. And it turns out hospitals have a huge amount of supplies that they Not only is there the regular stuff like packages that you think of in any business, but um, food gets struck both ways to every patient three times a day. Linens get changed every day entire hospital. Um, then there's medical supplies, IV poles, pillows, and moving things that go from the supply department down in the basement up to all the nursing units in the entire hospital. Then there's blood samples, there's x-rays, there's all kinds of stuff. So hospitals are basically a big machine that stuff around. And so we set up the tug to do that. The tug is now in 100 hospitals delivering supplies from the ancillary departments in the basement up through the elevators, out to the nursing units. Nurses take their stuff and hit the button, it turns around and goes back and plugs itself in the basement and does it all automatically. And that's been that's been going on now for about twelve years. And they're in, like I say, hundred hospitals and uh, hospitals around the world. How did you um actually that's the question. So you talked about pursuing a business education. Um, to complement your formal education, you were formerly mechanical engineering, robotics engineering degrees, um, and, you, and you mentioned finding people in your network to help build your business skills. Um, how did you have a strategy around building those skills? Did you target books? Did you have specific people that you picked the brains of? How did you go about uh, acquiring business skills? Well. That's the smartest thing I ever did. I'm really glad you asked that question because this is what I really recommend to everybody who is a technical person that has a great idea and wants to start a business. And because I was that, I had started businesses for 10 years, actually. I had been doing that from 1992 to 2002. And uh, I got these tugs to work in hospitals and my head of sales took over and ran the company. The product was done working. And I was looking for what is my next thing to do. What I learned from that 10 years of experience is that there's a lot of skill in it. And there's a lot of know-how. And like I wouldn't expect some business person to do the engineering that I did. I shouldn't expect me to do the business. My best example of that is you, you probably think I'm a pretty bright guy. Right? You're trustworthy. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. A- okay, so... Would you want me to operate on you? Probably not. Probably not, right? Because you want a doctor to do that. Well, you want a business person to do business. It actually has a whole set of skills that you build, not just in some courses in college, but a lifetime of doing it, like engineering and like being a doctor. And what you really need to do is team up with somebody who's developed some business skills, who's gone through a lot of education and knows, knows the world of business. Because it turns out it's actually really big and really complicated. And I, I, I liken it just to engineering or, or being a doctor. You know, it's the unrecognized skill out there. People think business, it's like uh, everybody does business. Or, you know, I know how to balance a checkbook. I don't know how to do a spreadsheet. Don't tell me I don't know business. Business is, I go into stores every day, I know business. <laughs> well, no. The whole engine behind that of the world of commerce, what actually happens to make businesses succeed or fail, is big and hairy and complicated. And 
if you, you develop skills at doing that. And so what I did is I teamed up with a really brilliant business guy that I met along that journey. And um, we, had, we ended up actually getting a lunch about three blocks from here 10 years ago, uh, where it turned out he was, he was a venture capitalist, had got this business he was starting called Camden's Clubhouse, which was a brilliant business idea, but it just wasn't getting traction. And so he looked at me and thought, man, if I'm going to do a business, I want to do it with somebody who's a really brilliant at making stuff and a closet businessman, so he understands my world. And I looked at him and thought, man, if I ever do a business with somebody else, if I ever do a business again, I want to do it with a really brilliant business guy who's a closet engineer, so he understands what I do and appreciates it, and we can respect each other. And Rob Daly and I decided by the end of that lunch, we were going to start a business together. And four months happened right there. It was actually thoroughly industries, just a combination of that last two names. Later on, it became four moms because we needed to have a brand. Before, though, meeting Rob, as far as acquiring or just build, building some of those basic business skills to be, uh, one of the analogies I've heard is you need to know enough about finance so that your financial advisor isn't screwing you over, so to speak. Um, how Was there anything you did specifically to work on your own personal business skills? Because I totally agree, um, your network, your the team around you um, complements and fills out maybe your weaknesses and lack of skills. But was there anything specific that you did to work on that facet of your game? Yeah, you know, I think that's an interesting question because it's a lot like Ultimate. I see people come out watch Ultimate, and I know one father I have in mind very specifically watched his son play a lot. It's actually in a gym when his son was a kid. And he just assumed that he could come out and play, and it would all be fine. And so he joined us, and he played. And um, he wasn't able to recognize the difference between the skills of people who did play and somebody who was a novice, which was in this case. Now, that's all great. He wanted to get out there and play, and I, I applaud him for doing that. But um, it's hard to recognize other people's skills in the game of Ultimate until you play it until you play with them or against them specifically, then you really learn how good somebody is and you start to appreciate what skill is in that game. And when you are, you know, you, you learn how good, what good ultimate players are when you play it. I'm sure the same true with football and everything else. I don't really appreciate football because I never played it. I don't, I don't get how good they are and how much skill they're applying when they're out there. Uh, and the same is true with business. You got to do it. And so I had for, uh, Athon, for example, spreadsheets of how that business was going to go, how many customers we were going to have. And I was 100% sure that this is exactly how I was going to do it. And then when reality happened and I was actually doing it all, it was completely different. I remember this venture, cap uh, excuse me, venture capitalist asking me, uh, how are you to plan? I said, ooh. And he said, can you see it? And I was, can you even see your business plan? Are you so far off your business plan that you can't even see it? Because he was a venture capitalist. He was used to people that were so far off. Every entrepreneur gets just so wildly behind with their business plan. Everybody's business plan is this hockey stick and nobody ever gets close. And you believe you're going to do it. If you've got everything lined up in your head, it's like, boom, you're going to go do it and you do it. And it's like, nowhere near it. So his, his phrase was, can you see it? And I think you've got to do that. And so start small, you know, do it with tissue paper flowers or something so that you can learn. Honest to God, I think even lemonade stand is a great learning experience because 
what you think you can do in your head and what actually happens. That's where the learning, and you connect those dots, that's where the learning happens. That's a big part of it. The other part, Aaron, is that there are just blocking and tackling the business that you learn when you do it. And you learn it from the experts that you talk to. You talk to a lot of people because you're raising money and you want to raise money from the smartest people you can find. And those people will give you good advice. And I got lots of good advice. I learned a lot from all those people. And, you know, you need some barrier to entry. That's, that's say, one of 10 things that you might not think of when you're an engineer with a great idea. But... If anybody else could just do your idea, that's a real bad, real bad problem. They find that out later when it's like, I guess everybody copied me, and so I don't, I don't know anything of any value. Um, it's a, just a typical example of not realizing uh, what, a, you know, what a good overhead is. <laughs> it is you have to actually throw it and find out what happens. Um, another really great example was I had, and this I think every engineer will understand this. Digital shower temperature control. Obviously, our showers should be controlled electronically. It is completely insane that they are controlled by a piece of metal inside there that is a valve that you rotate. Not only that, it's nowhere near in the convenient place. You rotate it by reaching over the bathtub and getting splashed with water as you do it. And it's a big, hunky metal thing that should not be your toaster oven as electronics. Metal can't do as good of a job controlling that water temperature as electronics. Electronics a thousand times a second could be checking and fixing it. So obviously that should happen, and I go about making various ways of doing that. I'm going to patent stuff. And actually, uh, I hired a businessman. I hired Rob Daly. He had free time at that time to go take a look at this with him. He went out. He did all kinds of stuff. But what he found was, looking through the finances of that industry, 85% of the dollars that flow through go through three companies, Kohler, American Standard, another 85%. Then we went out and talked to people in the field, and it turned out they said the same thing. Oh, well, we're building a plan here. There's 100 houses in it, and we only offer these two, American Standard and Kohler. And why is that? Well, because they'll stand behind the work. They're established, and if they have a problem with one, they'll come replace them all. And you know what? This stuff gets installed behind the wall. I, I, I put like bathtubs off in front of it, it is impossible to do. So it's super expensive if there's a problem. And they back it up, and they've been there forever, and I've seen them back it up, so I know they're well. Well, it turns out there's a huge brand strength there that a newcomer can't get. They can't convince that builder, hey, I'm Joe Blow, digital shower temperature control company, and uh, we got these great showers. There's no way you can take a chance on me, because if they fail and he has to replace 500 of them out in the field and it costs him 2000 bucks a piece because he got to tear the wall down for every one of them, it's a, it's a disaster you can't swallow. So it, there's a reason why that industry that way, is that way, but you don't learn that until you understand the basics of finance. So Rob was able to go look at and find out the dollar flow in that market segment. I don't even know how to do that. He was able to do that, find out 80% of, 85% of the dollars go through here. Then when he went out on the field, he was able to verify, okay, there's a reason for this. It is this install issue. And boom, he knew that business was a terrible idea, other than maybe licensing it to one of those big three. But I would have gone out as an entrepreneur and developed this thing. It would have been the best digital shower temperature control in the world. It would have been a Wired magazine all over again. And it would have been really great. I promise it would have been the best. It would have been great. And I wouldn't have been able to sell because I wouldn't have known of that problem, but business problem. So if you want somebody to diagnose your tumor, get a doctor, not an engineer. If you want somebody to build a business, get a businessman, not an engineer. Gotcha. So um, 
following that lesson learned of starting small and, and doing the research beforehand, what did the very early stages of Four Moms look like? That's really funny because what Rob figured out about that shower temperature control was it was the problem was it was behind the wall. If you could actually put it in front of the wall, then you don't have the install problem. So the invention became a five-minute bathroom upgrade where you unscrewed your shower head, screwed this new thingy called valve behind the shower head, which was electronically communicating through radio to a nice device like a wand or remote outside the shower that would unblock or block that valve. Safety implication if the water got too hot, it could block. Um, benefit to the customer, they can turn the shower on without having to reach in there. It will go back to the prior setting of temperature from your physical device that you just leave on. And um, it's going to save water because it's going to tell you when it was ready. The turn green thermometer show gauge out there. Um, so you didn't, you didn't wait long and didn't have to. So we took that to the Home and Garden Show here in Pittsburgh, actually, uh, February 10 years ago. And a uh, really funny thing happened. These old ladies kept coming up to us and saying they, they were really interested in this. And we were not selling this to old ladies. What this was was a really cool thing for guys like us. To, you know, it was a gadget. It was a really useful, good gadget. And we kind of shushed them out of our booth, actually, because they, they, they weren't really what we were after. Um, when the 10th one came up, we realized the idiots actually were us, not them. It turns out that the elderly have real fear around their showers. And if they slip, they break their hip. And they're terrified of the water. They can't feel as well. Their skin isn't as sensitive. And so they don't know. They're, they're afraid of what's going to happen when they get in the shower. It might be too hot. It might be too cold. And then if they have any sudden movements, they might slip and fall. Just, just the whole thing makes them very nervous, and they're looking for anything that can help them, and they love it. The other weird one was moms kept coming up to us and saying, oh, can I have that for my bath? Which didn't even make any sense because you can't block the bathtub spout or it comes out of your shower. Which is also stupid. And after the 10th mom came up to us, once again, we realized the idiots were us. Turns out moms are really worried about burning their kids in their bath, and they check it constantly. When they give their kids a bath, they're constantly sticking a little forearm under the bath because their kids are playing in the water, and the water could suddenly be scalding hot, and they don't know. And um, so once again, there was a bunch of business thinking about, can you really get distribution for these products? What kind of barrier entry could you get? What about that whole market segment? And um, what he and I knew was that we could make things better than other people because we had this robotics angle. I was very good at making things. He was very brilliant at understanding what people really needed. And um, it turned out Juvenile was pretty good. It looked to us like a bit of a sleepy industry. We didn't see a lot of batteries. We missed us. There weren't a lot of electronics out there. It was mainly just plastic products and probably could be pretty impacted by getting some... Uh, technology in there. And the big win was there was stores that sold this stuff. Babies are us and specialty stores that sold kids products. They're called juveniles for kids under three. Babies are us, bye-bye baby. Then another big difference was there was a, a party politics. 
where everybody bought bought gifts for the new newly appearing baby baby showers compared to the elderly, which was the other particularly good market, where we also saw a big need. These elderly people did not have good products serving their needs. Everything looked like you belonged in a hospital. But there was no big box store. There's no elderly are us store out there for us to get our product in front of people so they can see it and realize they like it and want to buy it. And nobody throws a party for you when you get old. So there's no like event where there's a lot of buying giving. Um, which means much harder market to reach. And so we chose juvenile products, baby products, and went to a show where we uh, showed our stout cover, which is what we made for the bathtub, and an infant tub, which is for bathing infants that you put in your sink. And when we were there, Rob saw a uh, McLaren demo where the lady got down on the ground to get the final latch closed on the stroller. She got down on her knees in the booth as she was demoing this thing. And the light bulb bulbs went off and Rob said, he was came to me very quickly and we went off in a quiet corner and said, power folding stroller. And the next three, five, Jesus, excuse me, eight years of my life, power folding strollers have been a large part of what I've spent my life designing. And um, quite convinced that it's better. Um, moms shouldn't have to futz with a bunch of mechanical goods um, parking lots while they're holding their baby and trying to get the car loaded up. They should just push a button and have it closed. They don't, they don't need to deal with that stuff. Um, the technology is there. The cost of adding that is not much. Uh, it's complicated. It's hard to do. It takes a lot of tricky engineering. Um, it's really very complicated, actually. They're pretty complicated products, mechanical strollers. But once you get that figured out, the cost of making is actually not that much. Um, absolutely convinced that it'll be what, what parents need and will save moms a huge amount of hassle uh, right where they can use the hassle the least out in the parking lot where they're holding a child there. So not only that, we did a, a play yard that uh, solved a huge problem with play yards. It's a, it doesn't have electronics, so you might not think it's robotics, but it's got 72 links in it. It's the most mechanically complicated thing we produce here in Fort Lawrence. And it solved a whole problem with those products that they were incredibly unintuitive and difficult to set up and take down. And they're portable grips. The whole purpose of them is that you take them down and set them up. And um, then we made our most popular product, the monitor, that is a suitor that saves uh, parents an unbelievable amount of headache if they fundamentally can't put their child down without something to soothe their child so that they can try and get something done. And so there are sing swings and bouncy seats that the monitor blows all those away because it moves like you do. Bounces and sways just like parents do. And kids just let them sell them around the world in 52 countries. And, and you did that by actually putting sensors on the way mothers Man. soothe their babies? You do your homework, Aaron Watson. A little, That's a little bit. A little that bit. is exactly right. You put accelerometers on the, on the backs of moms and measured their motions. Mom removes like moms do. We, we can assure you of that because we measured it. And it's, it's funny. There's a lot of different motions that mom, moms actually make while they're soothing their child. It's primarily bouncing and swaying, though, and... Uh, we got that down. Yeah, and it's it's actually kind of funny having seen the Mamaru, and then you go and see like a baby in just a regular swing, and you're like, that seems how's that ever gonna work, right? How's it gonna work? But also, yeah. that seems kind of dangerous by comparison. It's like just right. this kind of rocking back and forth motion. Sorry to everyone out there who's producing baby swings. 
Yeah, and the A-frame is just an outdated look to it. It's vastly improved by the modern. So uh, we've had these ever, um, ever-growing library of products that Formoms offers. I'm sure there's many more on the horizon. But another part of your company's growth is that you've earned multiple rounds of funding from Bain Capital Ventures, Castania, Castanea, Castanea pardon my French partners, um, among others. What have you learned from the process of raising such large investments? Well, it's a great question. And you're right. I've, I've been in, in the middle of a lot of fundraising for both Athon and Four Moms. Um, Rob is our CEO and I'm our CTO. So he sits directly in the middle of it. And I am right next to him. Um, I think the, the interesting thing to people who are setting out to raise money is that it seems like there's a dichotomy, but there actually isn't between truthful, being truthful and selling. And uh, I know this, this problem has been central to me all along in that I was given advice uh, early on by by advisors that uh, and watched other people do things that were not truthful, that were helpful for raising money, but not truthful. And I never did that. I, I wouldn't be able to sleep well with myself if I did, because it's already hard enough to make your business work. If you do believe everything you're saying, it's already going to be really hard. If you're, try, if you're saying you're going to do things that are even harder than that, you're really getting yourself into trouble. Um, you need to be honest. And at the same time you need to be honest, you need to dress well. You know, you need to, you need to show all the great things about it. You don't hide anything. But you need to put the best information and the best understanding and reasoning for what is truly great about what you're doing out there. So selling does not mean telling something that is not true. Selling means telling the best story you can. And when I say story, truthful story about what you've got and what you're doing. And the best way to do that is to believe in it yourself. And so what you need to do is figure out stuff that you actually believe in and set out to do it. And then you can raise money very successfully because you actually mean it. And I think that people who are investing can tell the difference too. And, um, I think there are a lot of people out there raising money who don't actually believe in their plan, but they know that's what they have to say to raise the money. And that's, that's not where you want to be. It's already going to be hard enough without having to try and do something you don't really believe you can do in the first place. Um, any, um, is there anything you, is there anything that you would have done differently looking back on the last, on the last 10 years or so for It's a funny question, Aaron, because often when, when Rob and I look back, we think, had we known what it was actually going to take to do this, not sure we would have done it. <laughs> because it was much harder than we ever thought it would be. And um, 
was going much slower than we all ever thought it would go. And um, we just couldn't imagine that we could have 10 years in it and still be, you know, busting our butts every single day trying to get this thing to be successful. I mean, it's successful, but we want it to be very profitable and we're not there. So, you know, if... <laughs> And I've heard other entrepreneurs say that, too, that if they knew it was actually going to take them, they're not sure they would have done it. So I don't think that's actually good advice. But if I think about, you know, what I would have done differently, it isn't I wouldn't have done it. Um, had I known more about how hard it was going to be, would I still have done it? Yeah. Um, I, so maybe, maybe realizing that it's probably going to be a lot harder than you think. Is worth realizing, but I also at the same time, it's more satisfying than you think it's going to be too. Because you know, real satisfaction comes out of working really hard to make something that's really hard to make. <laughs> and um, so I, I don't think there's any real negative in that, but I think you'll be shocked how long, how long it takes to do anything. What's one thing that you want to be better at one year from now? You know, I, I I could tell you some simple things that would be boring, and I'll go ahead because they're so simple. Like I, I'd really like to be good at ANSYS, which is a uh, mechanical engineering software tool. Um, I'm kind of waiting till it gets easier to use, <laughs> but it'd be really useful for me if I if I can just quickly do some stuff in ANSYS. It's also really expensive, and I gotta wait for the price to come down a bit. But still, that that I, I can name that as something that I directly. But when you ask a question as big as what do I hope, what skill or what do I hope I am a year from now that I'm not, um, that gets to me to more personal things and more about personal growth. And, um, for everybody, that's obviously a different thing, but uh, some people will identify probably with me that I was not raised with much confidence in me, I would say, in fact, exactly the opposite. So one thing that I see happening to me as I grow up is I, I get more confident about what I can do, like my life and what I'm all about. And so I, I look forward to that a year from now, being a year older, you know, would be better. Um, I, I look forward to Four Moms having a, a whole slew of products that we're just getting out the door over the next year. I really look forward to having those actually out and getting them out in the marketplace. They're just going to have such a big impact out there. They're, they're really a big deal. And uh, I really look forward to that. So you know, that keeps me busting my butt every day. Um, and not that I don't love it, I do it anyway, but still, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting to get new products out the door and work. We're producing over the next 18 months as many products as the entire history of the company. And the company's 10 years old. And fundamentally, that's because we got a big investment from Bain Capital about two and a half, maybe it's three years ago, and we beefed up our product development function. And so, and all that stuff's about to come out. It's been building up a huge pipeline that's it's, uh, starting coming out now, and it's going to be a hell of a year forever. Gotcha. I guess kind of one of the reasons I ask that, and this kind of ties into my next question, which is what advice would you give your 25 year old self? is as a 23-year-old um, smack between the age of your two sons, I, I at least personally have a feeling of, 
I have so many things I need to work on. I have so many books I need to read. I have so many, you know, I want to go to these places, have these experiences, work on all these different skills. And there's kind of a, kind of a thought is like, is there going to be a point where I don't have this feeling of, I have so much work to do on myself. Do you, do you feel yourself coming into a more fully formed or I don't know, self-actualized or that might be a little too philosophical here, but version of yourself, or do you still have a, or have you ever had a checklist of, I need to work on this skill, build this next ability? I know what you want me to say, Aaron, and I'm not going to say it because it's not true. I know what you want me to say is, oh yeah, now I got all that done. <laughs> when you're 55, Aaron, don't worry, you'll be done. There won't be any list of all this stuff and you won't feel that pressure anymore. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's not true. I, I totally look forward to me a year from now and then a year after that. The amount of things uh, and, you know, self-actualization is actually it. The amount of self-actualization I still have to go feels like a lot. And I can't imagine that a year from now, I'm like, yep, done. I'm finally it. I did everything I wanted and I'm fully satisfied now. I'm everything I can be. So, yeah, I, uh, if you're leading me to there, you're not going to succeed. Um, I, I can't imagine even the day that I will feel that way. I, 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 too, would like the relief. I mean, to me, it's pressure. There's pressure to be, I know how much better I can be. I know how much better I can feel. I know how much happier I can be. And I know what I have to do to get there. And I work on it. I wish I could get it done faster. But I can't. You know, I do it as fast as I can, and I get happier all the time, and I get more satisfied all the time. So, uh, you know, our country was built on the pursuit of happiness, and we're all doing that, and it works. I'm happier by far than I was five years ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. Uh, You will be too. And that doesn't mean that you'll be done. I, I appreciate. I really appreciate that answer. Um, on the subject of other things that definitely make you happy, um, I've been teammates with your sons Alex and Max on the Ultimate Frisbee Field for a couple years now. Um, a couple years. Um, but interestingly, I was actually picking their brain for some of your old playing stories from back in the day, and. One I learned just yesterday that made me laugh was that you had a team in Pittsburgh called Run. And the only way that anyone could make it on the team was if they beat you in a race. I don't know if it was that a 40, 40 yard dash or something. Across the field and back. Okay, so 40 40, so across 40 yards and back. The only way they could make the team. Um, any other standards for which players had to surpass to make it on the team or any, any other things like that? Nope. That was that was the bar. What uh, I've always believed about ultimate is that the, your ceiling in the sport is associated with your speed. If, uh, if you can't get open, doesn't matter how good you are at wrestling. And so you can be, you know, the smartest person in the world or you know, the best throws in the world. Doesn't really matter if you can't get open. And fundamentally, speed is the ticket to whatever level you're going to reach. And then you know, from there, it is skill and brains. And, strategy and all sorts of stuff, but uh, if you don't have that, it's pointless to develop you as a future talent, and what I was working on was future talent in Pittsburgh. I was trying to develop the future players, and 
Uh, so all I cared about was could they beat me across the field back? Yeah. By the way, pretty tough hurdle. Not many people did, <laughs> but I was also by definition the slowest person on the team. And Sean McComb and Brody, uh, the founders of the Pit Ultimate Team, were on that team. They had not ever been respected by the club teams in Pittsburgh, and one was a team they could get respect on. They could get a start or someone like me who was pretty damn good at that time. And uh, we'd take them through the championship series, not to nationals, but up through regionals and get to experience playing uh, uh, the March to Glory of the fall season. Those guys experienced it with me and ended up going and starting the pit team. Uh, maybe they already had it, but it definitely helped them get the, get the bug. So I was trying to get people excited about it, and that team did that. Um, some people may know this. Uh, some may not be. You've also been on the board of USA Ultimate, which was previously the Ultimate Players Association for a very long time. Your commitment to the community of Ultimate extends well beyond just the city of Pittsburgh's scene. Um, what has motivated you to be so involved and supportive of the sport? I'm going to steal a line from Joey Gray, who started the co-ed division a long time ago. She made the statement that always stuck with me that is the answer to your question, which is, I feel compelled by it and I can't help myself. You know, I joined, I ran for the, the very first board election ever uh, because a good friend of mine, Steve Mooney, told me I should. And at that time... The UPA was incredibly disrespected by everybody, including me. And I thought he was stupid at first. And he told me, no, the, the, the Ultimate Player Association is you. It's just the players. And I thought he was insulting me when he said that. And then I realized he was right like an hour later. That it's just the players. It's just the players who bother to try and help make it go, like the captains of the Fit Ultimate Team. They are the people who bother to make it happen. And that's all they are. You know, It's the people who care enough to try and help. And so I did that that first time, and I've done it ever since. And um, every time I think this is it, and then every time I'm really into it, and I, I love it, and I, uh, I'm in the middle of it, and I'm fascinated by it. I can't help but think about it. My career definitely, my career at work would have definitely been more successful if I didn't, because the number of hours I thought about Ultimate and not what I was meant to be thinking about was my work. I cannot even begin to tell you. Bad. Um, but I'm compelled to do it. I can't help it. It's, it's what I find myself thinking about. And uh, I love it. That's why I keep doing it. When you think about the future of Ultimate, just got recognized as an official Olympic sport, uh, not necessarily knowing when it would be included in the Olympics. Um, we've seen the pro leagues come up. We've seen the um, transition from the UPA to the USA Ultimate dating back a little bit. Um, further, when you think about the next five to ten years, what's really important that um, either the sport holds on to or that it creates for itself? Um, the biggest event that would happen in the next ten years would be ultimately being in the Olympics in 2024. If that happens, and I and other, a lot of other people are working really hard to make it happen, it would be transformational to the sport because it would be actually legitimate and on TV in front of every American household and households around the entire world 
probably in prime time as the great sport that it is and uh, completely transformational to every high school athletic director, elementary school athletic director, NCAA, uh, every sporting organization, YMCAs, every organizing entity in sports would now put it on their agenda as something they should do. And every person, everybody would get exposed to it. You don't go through the Olympics and not be exposed. I know about curling because of the Olympics. So everybody would know about it. And everybody would see how great it is. I mean, literally everybody around the world. And uh, that's about to happen with rugby. And it is going to be completely transformational to rugby in the U.S. and other countries. It's already a big deal in a lot of other countries. But around the world, they're going to be doing a demonstration in 2016. And it is the single biggest platform of sports in the world, and that is going to change us forever. And so that is the number one thing that I'm working towards. And um, we started something called the USA Ultimate Foundation, and that is something that is uh, uh, will be helping as a vehicle for working towards that also. Is there a number two? Ah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I would... Be a little controversial, but I'm going to go with the match play that happens in the pro leagues has been surprisingly successful. I've been watching the Pittsburgh Thunderbirds uh, match play games, the Thunderbirds games here at home. And it's just unbelievable how many people are out there and how into it they are and the impact that will happen on this city because that is happening will be, uh, I'm going to go with also transformational, not you know, worldwide, but in the city of Pittsburgh. I've got to believe that the number of high school or elementary school kids that go back and want to play ultimate with their friends after a Thunderbirds game is at least dozens, if not you know over 50, as compared with zero before that. Because the only place they get exposed is summer league, or maybe, you know, they got to a spring league or something. And that is probably not true because they're only doing that if their parents are dragging along. They hardly see any kids out there. So they just never ever see it. The sport just hides. Thunderbirds game? Completely opposite. And I'm not going to give Thunderbirds all credit. Match play games. So when you put um, a show together like these pro leagues have done and get it uh, to where there's a home team and get enough press around it so that people come out. Um, it's, I believe, transformational for those cities. And there are some things that, that are happening that I think are, are very bad there. I think the gap between men's and women's is going to grow because of the way the leagues are doing it, which is the opposite of gender equity. And I think that the wonderful emphasis on sportsmanship that is unique among sports, and actually completely unique, tennis and golf have it, and there's actually some rugby where they have it as well. But uh, for the most part, uh, I take that back. It was beach volleyball. There's some pro leagues of beach volleyball that are unwrapped. So it, we're, we're not completely unique, but we're pretty unique in having really managed to put sportsmanship up front and side with the observing system. And it's really hard to do as a player, kind of a lot of work. But in the end, you end up really knowing each other and having a lot of community power because of that. It's just a wonderful thing. And it's just a wonderful way to, to learn about yourself and kind of grow up. I have some calls I made us to worry about. And 
Yeah. It helped me grow up. So I, I hate to see that get left behind in the early New Deal. So I'd like to see it done, you know, USA Ultimate style with gender equity and uh, sportsmanship front and center. Um, but I, I, I have to I have to believe that the match play event that is happening is, has demonstrated how it is a tremendous growth vehicle for those cities that, it, that, that have it right now. And I really I didn't expect that. I didn't expect so many people to come. There's like 600 people. And that's just having a big impact. And I, I think it's, it's actually very good for the sport with the exception of the two things I mentioned. And I'd really like to get out there. If we could find a way to fix those two things, it could be a great growth vehicle for the sport. I actually, when you, uh, when you talked about having some calls that you think about yeah. or, uh, or moments like that, there was actually a moment at, uh, I actually didn't make a call, but I, it was the first club nationals I ever went to. Someone made a questionable call in the field. Um, and I, a younger version of myself at the time, started heckling, booing from the sideline, the bad call. Yeah. And you actually kind of like tapped me on the shoulder and said, chill out there and let them deal, deal with it on the field. And that's one of those little lessons where, you know, I felt a good, a good bit of embarrassment at the moment, but the lessons and reverberations of the lesson of, you know, respect the other people that are yeah, involved, really hear the other yeah. um, perspectives. You know, that's, that's really, really powerful. Um, even beyond USA Ultimate, I have to continue to uh, lump on the credit for you. Ultimate Peace is another organization that you've been very involved in. I want to wrap up with this before I let you go. Um, real briefly, go if you could go over the mission of Ultimate Peace and maybe how you be, uh, came to be involved with it. Yeah, I, I've got to say that the whole mutual respect thing carries over into the rest of your life, too. You know, poor moms, we have the words we live by, and one of them is respect, beyond all respect others. And that's a credo, a credo of our company. And our, our company culture actually is very similar to the ultimate culture. Um, and it makes teams and people work, it's a, it's a great way for teams and people to work effectively together. And we do it really well around here because we do focus on that. And so that whole, actually having mutual respect and trusting that somebody's call is actually legit when you really want it not to be and kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt is something that carries over in the rest of my life too. So, yeah. um, so to ultimate peace, I mean, what could be better than the conflict resolution and joy of play combination that is ultimate going out to the Middle East and helping helping with the crisis of uh, the complete opposite of that, a lack of joy and mutual disrespect. Um, Ultimate is the perfect tool for doing that because it actually is fun. You just can't not have fun. And those kids watch the videos of Ultimate Peace. They have an incredible time. Then they also, and these are Palestinian and Jewish children together. And then you, uh, you watch them dealing with the conflict resolution aspect of it. And just like you and me, they, you know, they have their struggles and then they kind of learn how to get along. And wow, what a perfect way to try and help solve the ills of the clashing cultures in the Middle East. So I've been a supporter, one of the really big supporters. I'm an extremely good friend of Dave Barkin. I think he's the most wonderful guy on earth um, and just love what he's doing and think it's probably ultimate ultimate calling. That's great.
Um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come to my show, Henry. It's it means so much to me that you, you took time out of your day to do this. Um, if people want to connect with you digitally on the internet um, to either you know, maybe discuss something that we talked about here or ask you questions, is there a way that they can do that? Uh, yeah, my email address is hthorn with an e at the end at four months, the number four M O M S. And then Aaron, let me return the compliment. One of the great joys of having having kids and being involved with sports is to watch people like you grow up and become awesome and become like you are. It's really a, it's it's as much fun as watching my kids. You guys are awesome. The whole team, everything you've done. Uh, it's a thrill to be there. on the sideline, but getting getting to watch you go. Thanks, Henry. We just went deep with Henry Thorne. Hope everyone out there has a great day. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thank you again to Henry for coming on the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to this. Leave a rating and review. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Make sure you subscribe so you can check out more episodes. Um, if you'd like to hear about business building, I suggest you go back and check out episode 23 with Nathan Chan. If you want to uh, hear some more Ultimate Talk, you can check out episode 5 with Charlie Eisenhood. Episode 25 with Evan Lepler. There's a, there's a number of ultimate um, episodes if you if you head back. But I really want to thank you for listening. And if you really enjoyed this, maybe you've left a rating and review already, um, and are looking for another way that you can help the show grow. Uh, what you can do is you can email this or another episode that you've enjoyed to a friend of yours. Tell them you know, hey, there's this new podcast I just checked out. Tell them why you think they'll like it and CC me on the email so I can get in on that action and uh, help uh, help more people find the show and find the good information that we're trying to share with everybody. Uh, if you've done that, then you know maybe shoot me a shoot me a tweet at Aaron Watson 59 or uh, try to engage with me some somewhere else on social media. I'm always looking for feedback, for suggestions for future guests. Uh, really want this to be a show that you enjoy and that uh, involves the people that you're looking to talk to. Upcoming episode is actually going to include Jeff Snader of the MLU, so be looking forward to that. Um, but beyond that, hope everyone out there has a great day.